welcome back to the Earth on Survival Guide, a podcast for all disciplines, paths, players, and game masters, and the questers that are Josh and Dan. In reverse, I am Dan. I am Josh. And on today's podcast, we will be discussing all things quizzical and eruentical, because we're going to talk about the great dragon, Divilganen, and answer a whole bunch of listener emails first. So uh, if you didn't get your email into us in time, no big deal. You can reach us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll get to yours when we get to it. So if you want to send us a, a note, tell us how fine we're doing or have any questions for Josh, hit us up. You know where to get a hold of us. So on to Scott. Greetings, Dan and Josh. Still loving the podcast. I am especially loving the dragon episodes and all the information. Thank you. We put a lot of work into this one. Uh, I'm a couple of episodes behind. I just finished episode 91. And I had a question regarding a particular dragon ability. You mentioned dragons having the ability to travel around in the guise of other name-giver races. If a dragon is in one of these guises, would there be any way for a player character to see their true nature, such as astral sight? If so, what kind of a difficulty number would that be? Would it involve the dragon using the wizard talent power mask in opposition or some other means to defeat the effort to tell what they really are? Keep up the great work, Scott. Yes, it is theoretically possible for a player <laughs> character to pierce a dragon's appearance in that way. Just off the top of my head, without grabbing the book to see if there's guidelines in there for it, and I don't think there are, I would set the base difficulty to actually pierce that transformation at the dragon's mystic defense, which is already high enough. Yeah. It's a good starting point. I'd go the same. It seems like a good starting point. The same way that you would need to beat the mystic defense of whatever you're studying in order to really get any insights into its pattern. Mm -hmm. Giving them access to the talent power mask would make it even more difficult, whatever the rules for that are offhand. Yeah, I'd say that's a good way to start. If not, uh, maybe a spell casting, because they have to use a spell, I think, of some kind to transform that way. So maybe it's, against the spell casting I mean, Well, uh, no. Okay. I wouldn't think so, because there's no real test involved. It's not a normal like spell that yeah, they yeah. cast in the way that other magicians cast spells. I think just setting it at the base difficulty of the mystic defense is probably easiest. Yeah, fair. I got, I got no problem with it. I'm just trying to throw out ideas that other people might have to say, let's shoot yeah. these down or include those. So Potentially have it be a spell, but then you need to decide what circle it's equivalent at. Because that's usually how you would detect a spell is based on the dispel difficulty of the yeah. spell usually fair to answer sort of the other unspoken question in there not that fair. scott was necessarily thinking <laughs> of it but i know that other people will because of the difference between detecting an astral imprint like if you successfully make that difficulty six plus corruption modifiers roll you can see everything within range you would definitely notice that the dragon was there but that yeah. on its own would not give you any information beyond being aware of its presence in a way yeah they're not a name giver that's all you got so well they are they are a name giver they are magical they would leave I'm, they would i'm sorry definitely None provide the, a living imprint 
in astral space. And much like illusions that are designed to conceal, they naturally have a sort of power mask type thing built into them so that simply looking at somebody with astral sight is not an easy way to overcome visual illusions. I misspoke. I was not clear in my statement. It would divulge that they are a name giver, but not one of the lesser races. <laughs> my misstatement. I misspoke. I knew yeah. That. So. <laughs> yeah. You would see their astral presence as a living astral bit. And if you wanted to learn more, then you would need to spend some time actually studying or analyzing their pattern and have a decently high astral sight result anyway. Yeah. Which, you know, the fact that you might not roll well enough to sense anything is in a way kind of clues, but you wouldn't necessarily know no, any more than that. Yeah, fair. Thank you, Scott. Lovely question. Uh, on to Ramther Zero. Uh, hey, everyone. Hope you are both doing well. I think we are. I know I am. Josh, you doing okay? I'm doing okay. All right. I have a possible multi-part question concerning group patterns. I've often treated it as a love letter towards werewolf packs in World of Darkness, where the pack identity becomes a relevant element in telling their story. So in your opinion, what was the theory behind group patterns and threads, and what are the relative advantages to have one as opposed to not? How would you explain how this group pattern affects characters that are invested into it? And in your words, how does it enhance the magical texture and theme that Earth Dawn resides within? Hope this invites a lovely discussion piece. That's a boatload of questions. So I didn't send this to you, but <laughs> about half an hour after that email was sent, he sent another one saying, Oh, I'm just now listening to episode 32, which I totally missed, <laughs> wherein we had our discussion about group patterns. But it's always a great subject to come back to. Oh, it couldn't hurt. It's a nice little refresher course here. Yes. The succinct Cliff's Notes version, or the Josh's Notes version. How's that? Well, the theory behind it, I think, at its most basic level, is providing something within the world that reflects the legendary or mythological traditions of there being groups that have in some way power as a result of being part of that group, even if not necessarily within the Earthdawn framework. But you have, say, Robin Hood's Merry Men. You've got yeah. the Knights of the Round Table. You've got the Argonauts, you know, of the of untouchables Greek mythology fame. The Untouchables, the Avengers, the X-Men, the Chicago Black Sox. I mean, come on. <laughs> Whatever. Where you have a group of people that are known in some ways more for being part of that group than for being individuals. And the mechanics that came out of that are, I think, largely the result of extrapolations of Earth Dawn magic theory and the importance of names and patterns and naming and stuff like that. That if yeah. you are going to have a group that is going to go to the extent of sacrificing life energy and performing a ritual that creates a true pattern that you can therefore, as you do with any true pattern, draw 
power from it and so enhance your own capabilities. The big advantage is <laughs> that having a group pattern, as we discussed back in that other episode, is it allows you to get bonuses to stuff that is important in various yeah. ways, some of which yeah. is not generally increasable in other places. Wound threshold, for example, is mm -hmm. one that can be notoriously difficult to increase, but also defense ratings or your effective circle for the purposes of durability or bonuses to your talents. There's a whole mm -hmm. lot of potential power that you can get as a result of having a true pattern. Obviously, a character that wants to invest into that can be more powerful and more effective when acting in concert with the group than they would on their own. Uh, and group patterns, as you may, since you're catching up a, a, little, a little bit here, um, are the basis of all the new discipline paths. So they are beneficial in a myriad of ways. It's an extrapolation of that. Yeah, the, the paths yeah. kind of play on that magical theory idea of there being an intentionally created true pattern that is followed by members of an organization and it grants them power as a result. So, uh, thank you, Ramoth Zero. Ramoth Zero? I don't know. It's all one big smash one word. I'm probably screwing up your entire name, your handle. Sorry about that. Uh, so, on to Lee, a frequent listener, frequent emailer. Uh, hi, guys. Still tuning in each week and still enjoying the content you work so hard to release. Thank you. Love it. We kept a listener. Woohoo. Yay for us. Thank you. Something I think you missed is a possible hook for exploring Liberator gameplay. I'm not saying this is a bad thing. The short-sighted dwarves also failed to consider this when writing their acclaimed Council Compact, after all. How does a magician treat the spiritual servants he summons? Does he consider them to be nothing more than disposable tools? Or does he recognize their sentience and capability for self-determination? How would a liberator feel about necromancy, considering or nethermancy, considering that it's the practice of binding, frequently an unwilling one, a spirit or name-giver's soul to a corpse to animate it for perpetuity. After all, uh... Innerthon astral space and its inhabitants are as real as the physical world's inhabitants are. Anywho, that's kind of all I had for now. Once again, thank you for another excellent episode. Lee. Hit it, Josh. All right, Lee. First of all, we might not have discussed it in the episode, but if you go and you look at the Earth Dawn 4th Edition Game Master's Guide and the section at mm -hmm. the beginning of the Spirits chapter where I'm talking about all the different kinds of spirits, I have at least one sidebar comment where somebody is saying, this is just glorified slavery. There you go. So it is something that was present as a, as a possible idea in my brain. <laughs> Yeah. How any individual liberator might deal with that is a fascinating question, but I don't think it's one that liberators as a whole have necessarily grappled with yet. I agree. It's kind of kind of odd to make it. It's kind of odd to add a generality to a specific player's idea. So yeah, it would be up to each individual player at that point. I think it's sense. a fascinating question and one that might be very interesting to explore for a character in a game if they want to struggle with that kind of concept. Agreed. That'd be great. There is, in 4th edition, less necromancy, nethermancy. I know that in previous mm -hmm. editions, 
there were actual nethermancy spells that animated skeletons and or corpses like a, like a cadaver man. Those spells are not part of fourth edition as of right now. I'm and I haven't looked at a recent draft of the magic book to see if there's anything like that that's going on. I think that's a secondary question and perhaps one that is different from the idea of summoning and binding spirits and so forth in general. I think one of the things that I've talked about a lot on the show and talk about in general is the idea of spirits as characters, yeah, people, beings that have their own wants and desires. And if a magician, if a summoner is going to be abusive or mistreat spirits that they deal with in any way that there will be consequences of that. So I think mm -hmm. in some ways, my feelings on that are well known, or at least you can figure out what they probably are. The shaman in particular is one that is written with a philosophy and idea that they are going to be working a lot more closely with spirits as allies and companions than they are commanding them the way that some nethermancers or elementalists might be. But I think that concept goes back quite a ways. If we look at the original first edition elementalist essay yeah, from Adept's Way, there is a very strong concept running through that of working with spirits and being friendly with spirits rather than looking at them as things that you merely summon and command. The Nethermancer essay doesn't deal with that quite so much. The Nethermancer essay deals a lot more with concepts of, oh, people think we're creepy because we deal with dead stuff and they're wrong and here's why. Mm -hmm. But I think that's still a very similar sort of idea. And Nethermancy gets into a little bit even stranger situation when you start talking about the concept that there may be ally spirits that are actually yeah. dead name givers coming back as ghosts or whatever. The truth of that, of course, is hotly debated in the circles of academia. <laughs> but that's another interesting idea. A spirit when you call a spirit up by name and are effectively commanding it or binding it in some regard. Yeah. What, what, how is a liberator going to deal with that? How is anybody going to wrestle with the concept of that being slavery or not? Where do you draw the line of, Oh, well, these things are not, Name givers to go back to our occasionally recurring discussion about the nature of what it means to be a name giver or a person in that mm -hmm. regard. Yeah. I don't have an answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think my feelings on the matter, you can deduce what they are. Yeah. But I'm not gonna be one who defines that hardcore when I can see the debate or where I can picture the debate that might be happening within the circles of the various disciplines that deal with spirits and stuff. Lee, uh, thank you for the thought provoking questions. 
we appreciate those. Keep them coming. Uh, love to see if we can explore more boundaries for you on that one. So uh, on to Morshium, who has a long email, which is going to be fun to read as well. Greetings, Dan and Josh. I've been sitting on these questions for some time now, never finding time to sit at my computer at home and write you. Most of these are Shadowrun related or early development of Earthdawn, so maybe best answered by Lou. In response to the question eons ago about Tuscrang with boobs, my question is, where did the Tuscrang come from? Or more importantly, where did they go? Shadowrun, in 1879, established that metahumans came from, and conversely reverted to, humans. The exception being windlings slash pixies, which I remain unclear where they came from, but seeing as they don't ha leave corpses behind, I assume one of the astral realms. So, where did the Tuscrang go after the Fourth World? And were there any plans to bring them into the Sixth world. We'll answer that first and get to the rest of the email in a minute. Okay. So this is answered from the standpoint of someone who kind of knows what was going on, maybe to a certain extent. Certainly while the games were unified, what you know, while both game both Shadowrun and Earthdawn were under the original FASA, FASA yeah. umbrella. Windlings were sort of present in the Paranormal Animals of Europe book as pixies. Mm -hmm. I think that's what they were called in that book. And Tuscrang and Obsidimen did not appear at all. The general reasoning given for that was that because the magic level was not high enough for them to appear. Mm -hmm. The concept of all of them being derived from basic human homo sapiens stock is an interesting one, but I don't personally hold to that particularly strongly, largely because of the radically different physiognomies and biologies that we're dealing with. The Tuscrang are an egg-laying race. Yeah. They reproduce by laying eggs. And it seems really strange. Like, magic can do a lot, but even magic has some limits. And so, as an egg-laying race, it seems really, really strange to me that they would be descended or derived somehow from standard human. Yeah, they're more reptilian than mammalian. Right. More so. Obsidimen, likewise, have a very, very different life cycle the association the very strong association that they have with the life rock and the lack of any kind of biological sex and various other aspects of them as a people also makes me a little bit reluctant to say oh yeah they derive from magic acting on the human genome as well if you're taking it from the Shadowrun point of view, where the various expressions of the name giver races are the results of magic working on the, the human genome, that's there's chunks of so-called junk DNA that only activate with magic being at a certain level, and they result in these other abilities and secondary characteristics. Obsidimen seem really, really weird in that regard as well, trying to justify how that might work within the, the biological situation with regards to humanity. Yeah. 1879, 
does sort of provide some insight into where the Tuscrang might have originated from. This is more of an Easter egg than anything that is actually canon as an answer within the boundaries of the fourth world. Yeah. But with the premise that there is another planet that magic is on and that there were portals that opened between Earth and this other planet at various times in the past, one obviously where a group of Babylonians went over to this other world and, and thereby vanished. Mm -hmm. But we find that there are Saurids, that's what they're called there, but Saurian beings that at least some of them bear a very strong resemblance to what we know as Tuscrang, that it's possible that much like we had people that went from Earth to the Grove, there might have been a population of Saurids that crossed from the Grove to earth the issue with that being in some respects that the tech level of the swords on the grub are a, very different than the ones that we find among the Tuscrang of earth dawn but of course Tuscrang on earth in earth dawn would have been exposed to the cultures and technology and learning of the dwarves and elves and other peoples of earth and consequently could have had their own culture sort of develop from that it's an interesting idea, and if it's one you want to play with in your game, have fun. <laughs> the idea of what happened to them at the end of the fourth world, we don't know. The end of the fourth world is kind of a long ways away, and it's not a question that we have thought about or really given any kind of definitive answer to. Because we don't want it to end. Just kidding. Just kidding. Okay, next one. Regarding immortal elves, I was always under the impression that becoming an immortal be it elf or human, was the result of serious amounts of magic. Mojo. See here, Frosty. You are now saying that the immortal elves are direct children of dragons. Is that correct? Yes. But you're not wrong as well that the <laughs> ability of individual elves from that bloodline to become immortals does require an awakening of sorts that involves a significant amount of magic we're talking Shadowrun, remember that there are spike babies, there are elves that appear prior to the actual return of magic in places where natural magical levels are higher. That is a thing. But generally speaking, yes, the reason that there are immortal elves is as a result of some degree of dragon blood or draconic meddling within the elven bloodline. Fair enough. Speaking of dragons, so where is Hestaby in the fourth world? I don't know. I don't know who that is. I My Shadowrun recollection doesn't go back that far. Yeah, Hestaby is one of the dragons in Shadowrun. I am not up on my Shadowrun lore to know more than, oh, I recognize that name as one of the dragons. So I, I don't know. I I don't have any insights on that. I don't know anything more about has to be than I have to go look it up. Hold on. No, it's been 20 plus years since I even picked up a Shadowrun book. I'm way out of my league on that one. So I am no help. Sorry. 
Uh, Hestebe is a female great dragon who lairs in Mount Shasta, north of the California Free State and south of the Tier. Tier Tangire. Mm. Yeah. She is a western dragon with dusky copper scales. Um, she is on the Tier Council of Princes, taking the spot vacated by Lofweir. Portrays herself as a dragon keeper of metahumanity, picking up the fight, as it were, from where Dunkelzon left off. I don't know. There is nothing from that that immediately makes me go, oh, that's probably so-and-so. So, female, okay, that rules out a whole bunch of dragons. Yeah. Dusky copper scales means it's probably not Aban, because Aban is the only female great dragon. Mm -hmm. Aban is not dusky copper. The nope. other female dragon that we know of, a uh, Western dragon, is Asante, and Asante is not Dusky Copper. Nope. Like, temperamentally, Asante possibly, but the, the appearance is too radically different for me to think that that's, that's an idea. So, Hestebe could potentially not even be around yet. It's possible, given the, the time scale. Yeah. That Hestebe... If she's around, maybe in another part of the world entirely. Or hasn't hatched yet. Or or may, you know, is is not a great dragon at the time of the Earth Dawn timeline. So, I don't know. Yeah. No yeah. idea. I am not thrilled with the idea of, oh, let's take all of these powerful, <laughs> long-lived characters from Shadowrun and find places to plop them down with in Earth Dawn. So. Yeah. I don't know. I, I appreciate Dragon. the insight and kind of finding out what's going on, like who has to be is in the first place. But exactly. Yeah. I have no uh, idea. Dragons, dragons move and relocate all the time. So covering the globe, who knows? Just saying. Uh, finally, can we get an ongoing series of deep dives into the original meta plot links between Earthdawn and Shadowrun and 1879? Highlighting the links to Earthdawn is a great way to get Shadowrun players curious about Earthdawn and or 1879. More excuses to interrogate, I mean, interview the original FASA developers. Morsium. He has a PS, but I'll get to that in a sec. Yeah, maybe. I've talked about in past episodes how the meta plot connections, the things that pop up in both Earthdawn and Shadowrun tended to be more on the idea of Easter eggs or deep lore that is driving what is going on, but not stuff that player characters typically will interact with a whole lot. Yeah. Exceptions, of course, obviously being things like the Universal Brotherhood, aka Invi slash Insect Spirits, mm -hmm. stuff that goes on with the Harlequin or Harlequin's Back adventures, both of which kind of deal with that. Some of the novels, I know that in the current sort of development iteration of Shadowrun, they're doing a little bit more to bring to the forefront the idea of the horrors potentially returning. I don't know that there are deep dives that can be done. It's more like going through and like pointing out, oh, yeah, these things are connected. Oh, yeah, these things are connected. Mm -hmm. The fact that. Aina Dupree, who shows up in Dunkelzon's portfolio of a dragon, 
and also the Worlds Without End Shadowrun book, and in a couple of other places, I think, as well in Shadowrun materials, also shows up in Scars and Little Treasures, the, the Earth Dawn novels also written by Caroline Spector. Yeah. You know, that there are some of the characters like that that show up in both. But I don't know that there's actually enough material unless it's just a run through of, hey, let's find a Wayback Machine archive of Ancient <laughs> History's old Shadowrun and Earthdawn connections list and just kind of read through it. Yeah. I don't know that there's a that how much of a deep dive you actually are going to get out of that. Or uh, maybe a deep dive. I'm not sure there could be a series, you know, maybe a one shot episode, but it, it Somebody more, more knowledgeable than me would have to guest host on that one because I – way out of the Shadowrun realm for a while. My fault. It's more that I would bring stuff up that I know of when I'm talking about Earthdawn-related stuff rather yeah. than necessarily trying to do an episode that is going to try and draw Shadowrun people into Earthdawn. Shadowrun people who are interested in that stuff are kind of already interested. Yeah. And people that aren't are not likely to be drawn in by it. I don't think. I could be wrong. But I remember the amount to which the ancient stuff comes to play in Shadowrun largely depends on whether the people who were involved in development and writing stuff at the time actually liked it as ideas and the amount of that waxed and waned depending on <laughs> who was working on any particular product or who was in charge of the line at any given time. Fair. Um, with regards to 1879, I have a very similar take. We don't have that much in terms of material to dive into with 1879. And again, I am much more of the feeling that it's better to have Easter eggs and references rather than trying to build some kind of overarching meta plot that connects them, because that's a lot of work. And anybody who has followed comics for any length of time will know how wrong that can go. <laughs> yeah, I would much yeah. rather have thematic connections or have things that make people smile to themselves when they come across them but that are not required to understand what the situation is. 1879 has its own stuff going on. They don't need us mucking about in their sandbox. Fair enough. Uh, so his PS is the human metahuman vampiric virus, especially strain three. Is there any connection to the Earth Dawn ghouls? And if so, does that mean all those infected are horror constructs? Maybe. <laughs> Fair. It's an interesting idea. I talked briefly with somebody at Gen Con who was a Shadowrun writer like three mm -hmm. or four years ago and was talking about vampires and, and as a result, the, the vampiric virus that kind of creates them in Shadowrun and how that might connect to Earth Dawn ideas of horrors and whatnot. Yeah. I don't know that anything ever came of it in terms of any kind of published material. It's an interesting idea. Yeah. Whether what they call ghouls in Shadowrun are the same thing as what are called ghouls in Earthdawn. 
It's an interesting question, and there is no solid answer. I don't know. Yeah. And how many thousands of years that virus would take to mutate? And the fact that we don't have vampires in Earth Dawn for reasons that have sort of been discussed in terms of potential concerns (laughs) with interactions with blood magic and things like that. Yeah. Fair. I mean, it's a possibility, but it also could just as easily be that what they call ghouls in Shadowrun are not the same thing as what are called ghouls in Earth Dawn. Yeah. Fair. It's just nomenclature here and there. Uh, thank you, listeners, uh, all four of you who decided to email us today. Thank you for taking up 35 or so minutes of our podcast uh, today. Um, if you fast forwarded through all those, sorry, you missed out. Uh, but on to our aeroentical portion of the evening. Uh, we are going to talk about Divil Ganon, uh, the newest great dragon in Barsave, because she's not actually native to Barsave. She's from Cathay. And she was summoned by Mountain Shadow uh, because her ritual magic likely exceeds his own. And she was brought here for a purpose. Disclaimer. (laughs) Quick note. Before we continue, the material that we are going to be discussing, the information that comes up here with regards to Divulganen, is material that is in the Living Room Games 2nd Edition Dragons of Barsave Revised and Expanded. Yeah. The original draft of the Dragons book did not have any information on Divulganen at all. The only information that was available about Divulganen at the time was the information that was in the Carafod book. Yeah. And maybe there was a little bit elsewhere. It was known that she was a dragon, at least sort of at a at a meta level. I don't yeah. think within the, the game setting, um, Krathis Gron probably knows, but most people probably don't. Yeah. And so I had not seen much in the way of information with regards to Divulganen from the old first edition development notes. I think a lot of what is said about Divulganen in the second edition book is mostly made up could potentially be counteracted by stuff that we decide to come out with later. Mm -hmm. And so even more than any of the other dragons episodes that we have done, this one is going to be informed a lot more by speculation and shooting from the hip. Consider this apocrypha. (laughs) (laughs) Here's your $10 word for the day. We are going to talk about it, but nothing against the Living Room Games guys. There is not necessarily stuff that supports this material beyond what is in that book. And our approach in 4th edition to 2nd edition material is what works works and what doesn't we cheerfully ignore. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so, as I said, she's Divulganen is from Cathay. So she's a transplant here under the guise of she was summoned by Mountain Shadow to use her ritual magic knowledge because what they were trying to do at that time was the move the horror cloud. Yes. 
or at least the ritual magic involved in what was going to be happening with regards to the eventual assault on Vivane and Skypoint. Much better said than I had it. Yeah. <laughs> the idea that she was asked to come to Barsave by Mountain Shadow is an interesting one. I'm not sure why that is necessarily required. I do kind of... I can see both sides of it. I can understand yeah. why that might be a choice that was made. Because... If she's going to be involved in dragon politics, if she's going to be involved in what's going on with the dragons and Thera, then it would make sense that she would have been asked to come. Mountain Shadow is the most likely one to have asked her to do so. Vazden Jass would be a, a, a another possibility, but I think would have deferred to Mountain Shadow in that regard. But I don't know that that is strictly necessary. Now I want to go back. Because I did read the chapter and I mm -hmm. did not get the chance to go through all of the stuff that I wanted to ahead of time. You can't quite reach what you're grasping for. Yeah, I'm trying to find like the <laughs> only thing that I can think of that might have had some insights into what's going on with Divulganen with regards to the dragons is in the original Barsave at War outline oh, gotcha. that was released right at the tail end. Yeah. When Earth Dawn, I'm sure I have like probably multiple copies of it on my hard drive, but I can't remember <laughs> what folder I stuck it in. Fair enough. Oh, there it is. Barsave at War original outline. <laughs> talk your way through it you'll get you'll get there it's kind of how i cook with a new recipe talk my way through it so the outline does mention that divulganen was involved in investigating the possibility of moving stormhead yes it does not indicate that she was asked to come by mountain shadow okay or what the reason was for her to be asked. Yeah, not necessarily stating it was for that purpose. Right. Let me put it this way. Yeah. There's nothing that is sort of first edition era that directly contradicts what was put forward with the idea of Mountain Shadow having been the one to ask her to come. Fair. It could just as easily have been that she came along for her own reasons connected to Krathis Gron. Yeah. And hey, while you're here. And because she was there. Mm -hmm. Hey, you're good at this. You're a fellow great dragon. And you're here. Why don't you help yeah. us out? <laughs> we'll explain things and yeah, yada, yada, yada. So I don't have... Super strong feelings about it one way or the other with regards to the reason that she's in bar save, except for like the initial gut check of Mountain Shadow asked her because Mountain Shadow's at the center of everything. Mm -hmm. And it just feels like more of the kind of 
semi-easy answer, not completely thinking through the ramifications of things that we occasionally get from the Living Room Games era. Mm -hmm. So Mountain Shadow inviting her kind of legitimized her presence, story-wise. Yeah. Okay. I got you. But I don't know that it was necessarily needed because of her connection already with Krathis Gron and the Orc Nation with regards to Prelude to War. Yeah, fair. Okay. So, uh, normally speaking, since we talked about a dragon's uh, description earlier, you know, the copper-colored scales and if there's a connection, uh, there's no description of Divil Ganon in her dragon form because she's rarely ever in her dragon form. So the outcast in his essay hasn't necessarily found out what she looks like in dragon form because she's so rarely in it. Uh, but when she's um, in a name giver form of the lesser races, she's a tall, lithe, Cathayan female with black hair and bronze yellow eyes. However, her draconic form is thought to be mostly blue scales with some gold highlights, no wings because she's a Cathay dragon. But that's still, you know, not necessarily ascertained in a definitive, but it's, you can almost count on that one. But again, as what the outcast says, we'll see how it goes from there. But in native Cathayan, her name is not actually Divulganin. It probably is pronounced something like Tua'ilguinan. So it's means burning. Again. Water. I know. We'll see what that does. <laughs> I'm kind of making shrugging motions here. You know, that's one of those things that that's like, okay, we've got to come up with some kind of Chinese thing that could conceivably be transliterated or misheard as this and therefore whatever. Burning Orchid is a perfectly cromulent Cathay and Dragon name. Yeah. But the whole stretch of, oh, no, it's probably this Chinese bastardization thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of those things that makes me go that. Why is that necessary? Like dragons have names that they have. Yep. And there doesn't even necessarily need to be anything beyond that. It feels like fair color or complexity for the sake of it. No, fair. It feels like somebody flexing, hey, I know enough Chinese to do this. Isn't this or, cool? I need to hit a word count in this essay and I need an extra paragraph to throw in on it. Maybe. I don't know. But again. But ag- again, have- knowing that Divulganin... Mm-hmm. The idea that Divulganin back in her native cafe is known as Burning Orchid. Yeah. Is fine. Like that it's that intermediate step that makes me go, why did we need that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Fair. So let's just say Divulganin means burning orchid and not talk about the bastardized mispronunciation of what it could have been and leave it alone. We're okay there. Uh so to flush out more of the personality in the essay about Divil Ganon. Um, she does not claim a permanent lair in Barsave, maybe has a temporary lair in the Dolores Mountains, where she's temporarily residing while Mountain Shadow invited her here, just, just slightly north of Carafod, because she likes to hang out in Carafod a little bit. 
but she's also found to hang out in Vivain, in Thrall, in Haven. So Divilganen travels a lot. Yes. And the other thing I can figure out from the essay, it's it's I feel another, you know, 2000 words would have really helped flesh out the personality some more because otherwise all we get is that, you know, Divilganen as a character loves puzzles and riddles, which is a nice thing to have. It's a ni- it's it's one of the facets of name givers, dragons included, that hasn't been flushed out at all in the other dragons. So they made her unique in this regard, puzzles and games in particular, but in riddles, yeah, give us a little bit more. Like, give us a few examples of things that she's done riddle-wise with other interactions and things like that. So I think something could have been, there could have been more involved in this essay to make Divilgain on on par with the other dragons that have we've done so far, but just something feels a little lacking. Yeah, and that's understandable. I just went back and double-checked the PDF of Carafod. There's nothing in the original Carafod book that talks about Divilgain being a dragon. Gotcha. Talking about Divilgain being someone that Krathis brought back from Cathay and yeah. apparently an elementalist, but does not come up with anything with regards to Divilgain being a dragon. So either the author of the Carafod didn't know Divilgain was a dragon. She's been able to hide it, maybe. I don't know. Obviously. But even in the <laughs> sort of not in setting game material chapter that's in the back of the book, there's nothing yeah. in there that hints about Divilgainen being a dragon. Yeah. The reveal of Divilgainen being a dragon. Mm-hmm. And this may be a little bit of where the extrapolation of Divilgainen's stuff comes from. There is one okay. mention in the original Dragon's Book, actually, of mm-hmm. Divilgainen, and that is at the beginning of the chapter on Vestervin, who we talked about a few weeks ago. Yes. The horror-corrupted dragon. Mm-hmm. It does actually, in Mountain Shadow's comments at the beginning of that essay, and this is sort of the bit, you know, that plays into what I just talked about from the old Bar Save at War outline. Yeah. And I'm just going to read the paragraph here. In light of the outcast discovery of Vesterbin's dual nature, we must consider the possibility that we may have something to learn from him. If his association with the horrors has indeed broadened his magical knowledge, Vestervin could yet be a valuable asset to our efforts and to those of our Cathay ally, Divilgainen. Oh, there you go. That's it. There's the connection between the dragons and Divilgainen. And yeah. there's the connection between what Divilgainen is re- presumably researching for them in reference to that, knowing that it's connected to the horrors and thereby Stormhead. But everything beyond that is extrapolation. And it's fine. You have very little to work with. You have to, you know, you got to find some way to put those all together. Right. There's there's very little to work with. There's the idea that, again, shooting from the hip, talking through my thoughts upon having read that essay... I kind of wince at the idea of Mountain Shadow having invited her rather than 
she coming to Barsay for her own reasons connected to Krathis Gron and Karafad and stuff like that. Yeah. And the dragons going, oh, here is a great resource that we can use in our ongoing efforts. Yes. I have a more positive emotional reaction to that idea. Yeah, let's 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 not that there's necessarily not that there's anything wrong with the idea of Mountain Shadow having. The only problem with, oh, Mountain Shadow invited her was, well, then how does she end up connected to Krathis Gron and the whole Karafad thing? Where does that connection come in? It makes a lot more sense for that to be flipped for that Karafad connection to be in place because of Krathis Gron and Krathis's presence in Cathay. Yep. That brings this dragon to Barsave and the other dragons in Barsave who would know about the presence of another great dragon coming because of the rules of dragon society and so forth would go, yes, great, you're here, you know what's going on with regards to our eternal conflict with our wayward children. Yes. Why don't you help us out with this Mm -hmm. from a logistical standpoint, from a train of logic standpoint? That feels like it makes more sense to me. It feels less forced. Yeah. It's an easier way. It's an easier inroad to go with. Yeah, it's an inroad that doesn't make a whole lot of. It doesn't require me. It doesn't have doesn't feel to me like it has as much of a need to have some kind of bizarre thing sandwiched in yep. in terms of this other connection. Yeah, it's, it's not too much of a reach or a grasp to, okay, I can believe this because, yeah. So it just probably was approached at a different angle, a less easy, an, you know, not, a, not, a, and not as easy an angle to get to. So I can see that because the last thing in the essay is that Outcast is surmising, supposing, proffering that Divulganin is as much a spy as a counselor to the Bar Save Dragons because of all this traveling she's doing. Is she information gathering or is she just making network connections? And I'm like, her home's in Cathay. She's here as a guest. She's on vacation, essentially, you know, visiting yeah. a friend in, in Carafad. That's my perspective. Lest it be thought that I am <laughs> poo-pooing all over this essay, I think there are some interesting ideas and good ideas yes. in this essay. Yeah, we're not, the we're not idea bashing it from head that, to toe. Oh, no, no, no. The idea that Icewing is not happy with her being there. That's a really interesting idea and plays kind of nicely with Icewing's general temperament in terms of how he views his yeah. domain. We haven't talked about Icewing yet, but Icewing comes across as being a little bit more egotistical and whatnot than his brother. What, from a dragon? No. And so the idea that Icewing does not get along with her and doesn't yeah. like her presence in Bar Save, mm-hmm. I think that is a fine one. It makes for an interesting dynamic in terms of what's going on. Totally. I think the idea that one of the terms of her being a guest in Bar Save, that her presence is allowed in Bar Save, is that she doesn't 
bring with her all of the power and connections and resources that she would have back home with her. Yeah. But that she has, by the same token, gotten around that by her association with Krathis Gron and has the Orc Nation as a semi-related network of stuff. Yeah. The idea of her being really interested in puzzles and riddles and so forth and her interest very similarly to Mountain Shadows in terms of magical mm -hmm. lore and learning makes a lot of sense that if she was drawn to the idea of being able to study the pattern of Carafad and what is going on with it in terms of the new nation and the history of the old nation that had been defunct for centuries and the weird things that might be going on with that. There's a possibility that actually isn't even brought up in this that Krathis Gron is in some ways a chosen of the passions. Mm -hmm. Something happened with her super powerfully magically with regards to the passions in some way that has driven her to where she is. That may be something that's a connection to why Divulganen might have interest in her and what's going on because yeah we know that the barsavian dragons from what vastinjas says know what the passions are and generally don't necessarily think highly of them certainly mm -hmm. doesn't don't think that they are necessarily worthy of worship <laughs> and so that understanding may be something that informs divulganen's interest in what's going on there are plenty of perfectly valid and legitimate reasons for Divulgain to be where she is and doing what she's doing and some mm -hmm. good ideas in that essay. But there are just some places where for me, the logic doesn't quite hold together and certain plot holes. <laughs> I don't, I don't even necessarily go that I would go so far as to say plot holes, but that okay. there are certain leaps made that I don't think necessarily hold up or that are needed. Fair. Absolutely fair. We do bring Divil Ganon back in Empty Thrones. She is go. something of a semi-important figure in the chapter that revolves around the town at the border of Carafad and Landis and the issues going on there and her encounter with Darla. Uh, A.K.A. Ardelia mm -hmm. is kind of a big one. And so we do have Divulgain in there, but we don't really do a lot to explore anything deeper with regards to her motivations brought more broadly within the framework of Barsave's ongoing story. Nope, fair enough. Uh, yeah, there's most of a page entry on 189 for Divil Ganon in the Empty Thrones book. So just flipping through that one as Josh was talking. So uh, really, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of update for Fourth Edition yeah. on Devil on Divil Ganon. She's just another tool in the in the sandbox for people to play with. If you're going through Empty Thrones, yeah, I mean, if you're going to be doing Empty Thrones, obviously she's going to come into play in that storyline. If you're doing anything heavily involved with 
Carafad, uh, especially if you're going to be dealing with the halls of power in a sense with Krathis mm-hmm. administration or anything that's kind of going on with regards to that, that the administration of that nation would be involved with, put, could potentially involve drawing Divulganen's interest, especially if you're dealing with something that's like ancient magic kind of mystery stuff. Yeah. Unlike some of the other dragons where we have a lot more to work with, Divulganen is much more of a blank slate because there just wasn't a whole lot there to begin with. So we kind of just need to make conjectures on things. Fair enough. Uh, Any final thoughts on Divulganen? Anything else we should maybe talk about? As I think we covered what we could mine from that essay. Yeah, I think we we hit the whole we hit we hit bedrock. I think we're good. (laughs) There's a lot left. Again, some of that stuff may end up being apocryphal. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to work with what you got. And in this case, we don't got a whole lot. And fair enough. And, you know, we're not going to retcon it. So it's there. Take what you can and use, use what you want to and disregard the rest. So that'll work. Yeah, folks, until next time, uh, go be apocryphal with your own legend. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>